Uh, and in the 19th century, a, a phrase was, um, was developed that, that I think is truer to what these great Celtic teachers have been saying, and that is the term pan-entheism, put, put the E-N between pan and theism. And what you get is, is not all things are God, but the, the, the divine is in all things. Um, Hi, I'm Brilliant, your host for this show. I know that I'm incredibly blessed. As the son of self-made billionaires, I've seen the high price some people pay for success, and I've learned that money really can't buy happiness. But I've also had the good fortune to learn directly from many of the world's leading teachers. If you're ready to be, do, have, and give more, this podcast is for you. The crises that we are in the midst of today, whether ecological, political, or societal, stem from the fact that we treat the earth and one another as less than sacred. These words were written by my guest today. His name is John Philip Newell. John Philip is a Celtic teacher and author of spirituality who calls the modern world to reawaken to the sacredness of the earth and every human being. John Philip's most recent book is called Sacred Earth, Sacred Soul, Celtic Wisdom for Reawakening to What Our Souls Know and Healing the World. John Philip began the School of Earth and Soul, which was originally called the School of Celtic Consciousness. Reading John Philip's book and talking to him today has inspired me in so many ways. You, like me, I'm sure are concerned about the future of life on Earth. It seems that the challenges we face are huge, they're complicated, if there's a solution, probably won't happen in our lifetime for many of them, and it can be easy to feel insignificant or powerless in the face of so numerous and so complicated of challenges. But if there is a solution, and I think there is, it will not come solely from technology or from policy. It will come from a new way of seeing and being and relating and acting. John Phillips' writing and his teaching offers the possibility of living, of being, of relating in new ways that are healthy, that are sustainable, that are fulfilling. So it's a big promise. Uh, there's not an algorithm, but there is inspiration. I hope that if you don't already know John Phillips' work, that you explore it a little more fully. This podcast, of course, is a great way to do that. You can also check out what he's created at earthandsoul.org. You can learn more about him through a Google search, of course. But I hope you listen to and enjoy and benefit from this conversation with my friend, John Philip Newell. John Philip, welcome to the School for Good Living. Thank you, brilliant. Good to be with you. John Philip, will you tell me, please, what is life about? Yes, uh, I think it's relationship, relationship, relationship uh, is how I would put it. It's being in true relationship with one another and allowing my heart to open to your heart when, when we're together and to receive and to give from, from the center of our being to one another. It's uh, about relationship with, with uh, earth, with every, everything that has being, uh, attempting to open the heart of my being to both give and receive from the heart of all beings. And uh, that, that, for me, that, that perspective changes everything. I, I think it, it challenges how we think about one another, uh, how we look at one another, how we speak, how we attempt to relate and to be true 
to one another. Yeah. Thank you for that. Why is that so hard? Why is that so hard for me? <laughs> Why is that so hard for so many of us? It gets in the way. Yeah, well, I, I think uh, uh, not, not to put down the ego because the ego is, of course, our um, gift of consciousness, faculty of consciousness and of will. Uh, but uh, I, th I believe that the ego is, is given to serve the center and not to be the center. Um, and, uh, and I think that that's the challenge. Uh, I, I've had the challenge in my own, in my own life daily. And, uh, and I think that that's true of the collective ego of you know, humanity in relation to Earth. Um, uh, when we begin to think that we uh, conserve the human species uh, in opposition to serving Earth or being true to Earth, then, then of course we do enormous damage to Earth and to ourselves. And I think that that's true at the collective level between nations um, and uh, between religious traditions, between communities, and, uh, and as well as, of course, emphatically at the individual level. So uh, one, of, one of the teachers that I draw from in the new book, uh, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, um, from the sort of French Celtic stream, uh, uses a phrase that I find so helpful. He says we, we need to um, decenter ourselves, but he calls it excentration, um, finding the true center of our being, uh, not, not within ourselves uh, in a limited way, but at the heart of one another and at the heart of all things. If we can find our shared center in, in that sense. Then the, then the ego does what I think it is there to do, and that is to truly serve the, the sacred center at the heart of all life. Mm. Yeah, thank you for that. So your most recent book, Sacred Earth, Sacred Soul, Celtic Wisdom for, for Reawakening to What Our Souls Know and Healing the World. Uh, I found this just looking online. I hadn't been aware of your work before that. I know you've been working for decades to share this wisdom. I was very pleased to find it. Uh, I told you before we began recording that in the, uh, the last couple months, I've been sharing it <laughs> broadly with people on airplanes, with the mindfulness group I, I run, um, with the newsletter I write and so forth, because it just, it speaks so much to, I think, what, our, what we're looking for right now, even though we might not recognize it. And it's rooted in this deep tradition of which I had very little familiarity, this Celtic wisdom. So I actually want to start there. Will you, will you tell me who were, who are, who are the Celts? Yeah, we, we uh, sometimes uh, refer to the Celts or we generally see the Celts as consisting of Scotland, Ireland, Wales, Cornwall, Brittany. Uh, but that, that's just the edge. That, in a sense, is the fringe of, of what at one stage was uh, a network of peoples that spanned the whole of Middle Europe, uh, ranging from as far uh, east in Europe to Turkey, places like Galatia, which just means the land of the Gales, the land of the Celts, and right through to you know, places like Gaul, land of the Gales, uh, taking in Galicia, uh, 
ancient Spain, right, on the Atlantic coastline. So at one stage, around 500 BCE, the Celts ranged the whole of Middle Europe. This was not an empire, but rather a sort of interconnected, interdependent network of, of tribes, of people sharing a common language base. And uh, one of the, the really interesting things to me is that the language base is sort of Indo-European. So Gaelic, the Gaelic spoken in places like Scotland and the Gaelic in Ireland, uh, it is much closer to Sanskrit than it is to any other, um, any modern uh, language in, in Europe. So it speaks of this ancient connection with India that uh, I, I think uh, in so much Celtic wisdom and Celtic vision, we can hear uh, India's sense of the sacred universe. Um, so um, they, they, that's who the Celts are. Thank you for that. Yeah, that's, that's my sense as well. You know, in college, I was an Asian studies major. I was an English major. So I've been fascinated by, you know, um, these cultures, these Eastern, Eastern cultures for a long time, and have had the opportunity now to travel pretty broadly in Asia. And I definitely, the thing that uh, my sense of reading your book and learning more about the Celts and what they believe and how they lived, it was kind of like filling in a dark spot on a map in my understanding, because I'd had a sense now to be in Japan and China and India and so forth and, and see, you know, the legacy of a lot of that, that wisdom. But in Europe, it seems like, first of all, there's so many layers, like even still I'll come across these articles online. I'm sure you've seen about a discovery in London of these roaming coins or, you know, something. And, And it's just layer on top of layer on top of layer, but we seem to live in a way that we think we're the only culture that's ever lived (laughs) a very narrow view and reading yeah. your, your words, it just, um, it was really beautiful to sense there is this, um, it seems there's this underlying spirit or current, which of course has some kind of harmony with indigenous cultures, yeah. I think yeah. here in the United States. And you use this, um, I'm not sure if these were your words or you were maybe pointing at someone else's work about these are not given to compete yeah. with each other. Will you talk about that? Yeah. Um, yeah. The, I mean, the phrase that I find it helpful because these words are, are so sort of close in sound. But I, I say they're, they're given not to compete with each other, but to complete uh, each other. And, uh, and uh, you know, I, I have found this to be the case emphatically in my relationships with Native teachers, with Jewish teachers, with Muslim teachers, with Buddhist teachers, that I find... Uh, what I'm offered in that relationship is, is a, in a sense, an invitation to a, a greater completion of vision. And, uh, and one of the things that, that I have loved about interspiritual or interfaith relationship is that, yes, of course, my Jewish brother, you know, my Jewish rabbi will, will give me wisdom from his uh, Jewish inheritance. Uh, but the, the, the big surprise, although, it, I mean, it shouldn't have surprised me so much, but when I began to pay attention to it, I thought, oh, uh, uh, what he also offers me uh, is often uh, wi- wisdom perspective on Jesus. Um, mm. and, uh, and that's exactly how it should be, that I think that, that uh, 
teachers and sort of devotees from from other traditions can sometimes see a shining uh, in in our in one's own inheritance that that we've missed because of course in in so much Christianity uh, we've we've wrapped uh, Jesus up with uh, or straitjacketed him maybe rather than wrapped him up with a lot of doctrines about him uh, to the extent that we sometimes miss the miss the pearl uh, in our own in our own tradition. So uh, I, that, that's been part of my experience. And uh, brilliant, while, while we're speaking about the, this fascinating link between India and the Celtic world, and Sanskrit, and Gaelic, uh, I'd like to share uh, something that I've been involved in, in fact, up here in Fintorn in Scotland, where I am at the moment. Just a number of days ago, we did a, a live stage production, dance, music, song, word, um, uh, uh, based on a script that I've written uh, about the Celtic spirituality of the Western Isles. Um, but in, in the live stage production, uh, we're sometimes using Gaelic music and sometimes using Sanskrit. And we're allowing the, the music of these ancient cultures to, to sort of meet and, and be woven together on stage and the, uh, the dancer in, in the production, in fact, is one of my daughters who's spent five years in, in India. And you know, part, of her, part of her journey was, in fact, through uh, this uh, beautiful sacred dance form of southern India. Uh, in many ways, she, it was through another tradition that she reclaimed some of the heart of her own sort of Celtic inheritance more deeply. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we sort of experience through art form as well as through word this uh, intermingling of Celtic and Indian wisdom. Wow, how beautiful. Oh, but that's really special. It was. It, it felt a real uh, convergence and and um, and you know we, we want to uh, we want to celebrate it more. So we're thinking about the next stage for this live live stage production. Wow. What do you call it? It's called Hebridean Treasure, uh, Lost and Found. Uh, so it, it's an exploration of the, this rich uh, oral tradition of prayer, poetic utterance. These were uh, incantations or chants that were used at the rising of the sun, the setting of the sun, the birth of a child, the death of a loved one, the kindling or lighting of the morning fire, and Swearing or covering of the hearth fire at night, so they they belong very much to uh, life in the sacredness of nature, um, rather than being sort of formally religious prayers. Uh, and they were they passed down for hundreds, thousands of years in the Hebrides. And then part of the story that I tell is is how this tradition was uh, persecuted or suppressed by uh, a form of Calvinism uh, at the time of the the Reformation in Scotland and centuries after, and then how this um, how these people this culture was decimated at the time of the Highland clearances, when people were torn from their ancestral lands, uh, and uh, and of course you know this is a particular story. It's a, a story of what happened to Hebridean culture and Hebridean wisdom in the Western Isles. But at the same time, it's a universal story. It's what 
is what has happened again and again to Native peoples and to uh, a threat to Native wisdom, uh, which we so desperately and urgently need. Uh, these traditions hold great uh, wisdom for this moment in time, especially in our relationship with Earth. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, for the last few years, um, I've been involved with a group of young investors and philanthropists and entrepreneurs and so forth. And many of them are second or third or even fourth or fifth generation of some of the wealthiest families in the world. And, and part of what I love about the group is that they're asking, you know, who am I in, in this context and what is my responsibility and so forth. So I think there's this kind of self-selection of, of a lot of these members. And, and then the other thing is that many of them are actively, um, you know, working to make a difference for life. And they're going about it in so many different ways, whether it's human trafficking or it's climate change or it's animal welfare or whatever. And I, I have resisted jumping into any one of those particular causes. First, any one of them seemed so overwhelming, which isn't a reason to do nothing, I, I know. <laughs> but the, the other thing that I just keep returning to, and your book reminds me of, and what you're saying now reminds me of, is that I think there's a root, there's a common root of all of these problems that we've created that's consciousness or a remembrance of the sacred or however we might phrase it and and i often find that it's difficult to know how to go about right because i don't want to be a crusader or a do-gooder i think paradoxically many people who want to do this work who are attempted to do this work probably doing <laughs> more harm than good trying to you know force people to be a certain yeah. way or something but where I'm, where I'm going with all this, I think, is just asking you, like, to share, is this narrative of empire, you know, whatever you call that, authority, it disregards the sacredness so that it can do what it wants with matter, whether that matter is property, whether it's people. Like, I had never seen that kind of so simply framed as I did in your book. But that seems to be, to me, the real issue, because well, any of these problems, we, I don't think we'll solve them with technology or legislation or policy or whatever. It will be a remembrance or a returning to an awareness of, and not just intellectually, but then living that, right? Yeah. yeah. But how do you, I, I'm not sure there's even a question there. <laughs> how do we go about, like, first of all, will you speak to that simple model maybe of empire? And then, and then the second is like, once we, if we see it that way, what do we do about that? Like, how do we yeah. live? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I think that uh, that that um, articulation of, of what this uh, tradition offers is 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 very very true to how I understand the stream of wisdom in the Celtic world, and uh, and is precisely why these great Celtic teachers. I mean, I have nine chapters in the new book. Uh, and uh, you know, each chapter is given to a particular prophetic figure in the, in the Celtic world or uh, a way of seeing that emerges uh, over the centuries from as early as the second century right through to today. And one of the common themes uh, running through it is that nearly every one of these teachers was excommunicated, judged as heretic, banned, uh, silenced by the Vatican, etc. So what, it, what it, is it in this way of seeing this so inconvenient to, uh, to empire or to 
holders of power. But of course, the the first expression uh, that I deal with is uh, explicitly in relation to uh, a Welsh teacher named Pelagius, who in the fourth century ends up being banned by the Roman Empire, banned on the charge of disturbing the peace. <laughs> and uh, what, what he was really disturbing was the convenience of empire, because uh, empire it was not convenient for empire to be to be told that uh, that at the heart of every human being is, is expression of the divine. It's not convenient to empire to be told that the, that the root of wisdom or the wellspring of wisdom is, is deep within every human being because what empire likes to do, uh, not just the Roman empire, but the British empire and the American empire, any uh, nation that tries to exert control of the rest of the world for its own uh, so-called well-being and benefit. Uh, it, 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 uh, what empire wants to do is, in a sense, dictate or, or tell the people what, what to do. Uh, and, and similarly, this applies to the way in which the Celtic tradition has consistently seen the sacredness of earth. Uh, empire doesn't want to be told that uh, what we do to matter, what we're doing to the divine, because... Uh, Empire wants to exploit, exploit a matter, again for for its own um, limited well-being. So uh, that that's a, a pattern that that continues itself over over the centuries. But, uh, on the theme of of remembering, I I think it's uh, this this one feels has felt so important to me and and continues to be uh, one of the ways the the Celtic tradition puts it, is that we, we have forgotten who we are uh, and we're being invited to, to wake up to, to our true depths uh, and to those depths at the heart of one another. Uh, e- each person, each life form, a unique and unrepeatable expression of the divine. Uh, and so the, you know, what, what is my role in, in relation to you uh, or to another human being, uh, what what are our spiritual uh, traditions of wisdom meant to do? And uh, for me, I, I think it's so important and so liberating to remember that our role is to simply, through our words, through our actions, through our interrelationship, try to wake up uh, what what is already there. So it's not. Uh, you know, the pattern in so much imperial Christianity has been a sort of conquering or triumphing over other peoples. And uh, whereas this uh, Celtic Christian wisdom stream has been not, I have truth, let me generously <laughs> tell you what it is, but rather uh, uh, to, to look to awaken that, that uh, source source of wisdom, that source of truth that is deep in you. And that, that um, frees the, this tradition and, and any great uh, spiritual tradition that I think operates with the sense of innate sacredness. It, it frees us from the, the tendency to, to, to a sort of self-righteousness of, of we have truth and, and this is what the rest of the world needs. Uh, it's much more 
the divine is is deep within you. We, we don't have to invoke it. We don't have to sort of somehow uh, deposit it in, in you from above or from afar. Uh, our, our love for one another, our responsibility for one another is about awakening that. And uh, my sense is that when we when we wake up uh, to to the sacred at the heart of one another then we're you know we we long to live in different ways we long to uh, interrelate in, in ways that serve that center um, so I, th- I think there's a, a real a key link between uh, between this remembering uh, and and uh, and a radical change in, in action and in desire. Yeah, I, I think you're right. It's my, it's my suspicion. And it reminds me of a term, I'm not sure I have this right, but um, I think the Greeks called it anamnesis. Yeah. This idea that all, all learning is really just remembering. Yeah. I think there's something, I think there's something in that. And it's very different. And this is part of, I think, what drew me to coaching is this idea that it's very different from therapy or you know where therapy tends to believe and there's a time and a place for therapy i do believe but where i think a therapeutic model tends to believe you're dysfunctional and we're going to return you to function you're inherently flawed or you're somehow got flawed and we're going to help you work again we're yes, coaching sort of totally second different. version of original sins <laughs> yeah yeah i think so i think so in this in this no surprise it was um i heard a, a professor of religious studies who shared this model. And it, it, again, seeing it framed so simply was about, you know, where Western religions by and large tend to believe, you know, man is here or humans are here and God is up here somehow. Yeah, yeah. The, and he called those the religions of revelation versus the religions of release where yeah. God is imminent, not transcendent. And yeah. I thought, what an amazing, no wonder, like that's a worldview. I think we're almost trapped inside. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It it, uh, it reminds me of um, uh, something that uh, Martin Buber, you know, the great sort of Jewish teacher in the twentieth century. Now, I mean, he he belongs to a tradition that that uh, that in many ways would be described as transcendent. But he he sort of turns it t- turns it over, uh, and you know, he speaks about that that first great story of. Revelation, which I think is the story of release. That's a good distinction. Uh, the, the story of Moses encountering a bush that is on fire with the divine. And uh, one of my rabbi friends uh, says to me, you know, the important thing about that story is not that the bush was burning, but that Moses noticed because mm-hmm. every, <laughs> every bush is burning. <laughs> the, whole uni- the whole universe is a burning bush. Uh, and that's what we're, we're being invited to wake up to, and and it's uh, it's it's a, a, certainly a consistent thread in in the in the Celtic tradition, and we we find it resonating in, in many other traditions that uh, it's a it's about um, not uh, not so much a, a sort of revelation of the divine as a disclosure. Of, of what is deep in every place. And um, I was thinking of, of Uber uh, a few minutes ago because he, he says about that, that story of release or revelation of the burning bush, he says that the greater a story of release or revelation is, 
uh, the more deeply it points to what is present everywhere. Mm-hmm. So in, instead of seeing it as, as an exception to reality or as a foreign to, uh, to the rest of reality, it's actually a disclosure. And, um, and I think that's what's interesting about the, the word revelation. Maybe the word revelation is closer to what we're meaning by release because it, it comes from the Latin root revelare, which just means to lift the veil, you know, to to uh, disclose, to show what is what is um, deeply there. I love that. So, okay, there's a few things from your book that I want to ask you about because for me, they either gave a, a word, they gave a term to something that I think I recognize, or just more of a general sense, even if it wasn't a term or a word, that I think might be of value to people listening as well. Uh, the first thing is something, I believe this again is Pelagius, talks about something called a soul friend or an anamchara, an anamchara which yes, sounds, that sounds like Sanskrit actually to me. <laughs> but will you talk about what this, what is an anamchara or what is a soul friend? Yeah, it's, uh, it's very important to, to a teacher like Pelagius in the fourth century and uh, and it's interesting to see how, how important it is consistently th- through the centuries. So the, the Anamkara, uh, the word really means a lover, uh, a lover of our soul. Um, and uh, the uh, Pelagia says about uh, how important it is to have an Anamkara. He says a person without an Anamkara is like a body without a head. Uh, <laughs> in other words, he says it's pretty pretty important. And, uh, and he says, show everything to your Anamkara, uh, hide nothing. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that's not because my Anamkara, the lover of my soul, uh, knows more about what is within me than I do. Uh, but in the presence of her love, uh, I'm able to, uh, I'm set free to, to try to articulate what is stirring in my soul? What's trying to come up into greater consciousness? What's trying to awaken in me? Um, because there's a, there's often a lot of inhibition around uh, sharing from deep within, and this hasn't helped, been helped by a tradition, by many religious traditions that that uh, try to claim that truth truth is you know all truth has already uh, essentially been revealed, and we need to make sure that we. We sign up to it or that we're true to it in our expressions. So there's been a lot of inhibition. And I think that what the Anamkara relationship, this sort of opening the soul, opening the heart, opening the mind uh, in the presence of love um, means that we we find ourselves uh, articulating, in fact, what, what we haven't known before uh, and uh, and the uh, that allows awareness, it allows wisdom to rise up into our consciousness in, in ways that then affect how, how we're going to choose and desire to live. Uh, so I, uh, I think this, this Anakara relationship uh, expresses itself early on in the Celtic world, and, and it's a much cherished um, fu- function or uh, way of accessing that we... I, I think, uh, I mean, that same teacher, Pelagius, that uh, fourth, fifth century 
Welsh monk, uh, he, he also speaks about learning to read uh, what has been written into us in, in the very sort of fabric of our being. Uh, so, uh, uh, but it's, it's the coupling of this uh, reflective uh, discipline on one's own with uh, the importance of having another or having some others that, that we can then show, show what, what is within us uh, as a way of uh, releasing, releasing consciousness and awareness. Yeah, that's, it's such a beautiful concept, and it, it brought up so much for me. And again, it was almost like a coalescing for me of certain things I'd heard or come to believe uh, through my own experience. And and one of them is this idea. So this goes back, of course, to the very first thing we talked about, about relationship and not only having a soul friend who can, you know, who serves that purpose for us, but then us also being that for someone else or for others. Yeah. So that essential unity or the opportunity to, to be in relationship. Uh, it was one. And then another was something that I remember reading uh, in a book uh, from another guest on the show, Stephen Cope, who teaches at Kupalu. And, and I know many people, but he, he brought this idea of relationships as containers where we can heal, right? If we had a period of growth, and I know this, I think Rogers talked about this and so forth, that if our yeah. If our soul's growth was somehow impeded, you know, which is amazing. And I think many people know this when they, if they just look around in their own lives that we might grow up and have a big body, but many of us in certain ways, at least are still just children, yeah. <laughs> bigger children, but that our relationships can provide this function of us continuing the growth that maybe we should have had at a younger stage in our life. And how, how amazing just being a witness or being witnessed and then what I think Forrester wrote about, I don't know what I think, and like, how can I know what I think until I write it <laughs> kind of thing? Like that we've probably all had that experience of saying something, whether to yeah. a friend or again, a therapist or a coach or something. And it's like, oh, I didn't realize that, that I really believe that. But yeah. this, the soul friend can give us the space and, and perform that service. It's really an amazing, an amazing yeah. gift. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's something that I have sort of increasingly come to, to love about dialogue you know, such as what we're having right now and that is that in you know dialogue is it's not about me uh, presenting the thoughts of the thoughts of yesterday uh, I mean I, I also believe in, in, in the importance of being able sometimes to present thought to present vision to present material but I think one of the very beautiful things for me about dialogue is that uh, when something, you know, when you say something to me, uh, or when you ask me a question in a context like this, it's 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 a matter of opening opening your mouth, uh, and 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 uh, sometimes being surprised at, at what comes out. It, it comes, <laughs> you know, in a good dialogue, when there when there is this sort of heart to heart soul soul connection and the sense of freedom of of expression, then uh, it, it, it's not a, it's not a, a, a one-way blessing. It, it's, it's, very much, it's very much an opportunity to be further illuminated within oneself as well as hopefully serving the, the other. 
Yeah, I, th- I think that's probably that idea, right? Between wherever two or more are gathered in my name kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I, I think yeah. so. Okay, so that was one thing. Another, and we, I think we've kind of touched on this a bit already, but again, you gave a word to this that I hadn't heard, this idea of panentheism. Will you talk about this idea and why it might matter to us in, in our current moment? Yeah. Yeah, so the, you know, the, I suppose uh, a much more familiar term uh, to, to many is the term pantheism, uh, you know, derived from pan, meaning all things, and theism, a god or the divine. Uh, so pantheism has tended to, to be used as a term to refer to a, a belief that everything is, everything is God. Uh, the, and, and interestingly, within, within the Christian tradition, the, the Celtic uh, Christian stream has often been a, accused of, of pantheism because uh, people have heard Celtic teachers say that the sacred is, you know, is deep within all things. Uh, and in the 19th century, a, a phrase was, um, was developed that I think is truer to what these great Celtic teachers have been saying, and that is the term pan-entheism, put, put the E-N between pan and theism. And what you get is, is not all things are God, but the, the, the divine is in all things. Um, that, so pan-entheism is a, is a philosophical term, and it's, it's a value. I'm, I'm always aware that um, so many of the great Celtic teachers that I draw from are uh, not so much philosophers as poets in, in their expression. And uh, so uh, while there's an acceptance of the value of the term panentheism, what you tend to get in, in, in the Celtic stream of wisdom is, is something much more like the life within all life, the soul within the soul, the sun behind the sun, and, and as, as a way of... Um, speaking of this sacred essence uh, that doesn't somehow confine the, uh, the divine or the sacred to the known, but see, sees everything as manifestation or expression of, of the one. And um, I, you know, speaking from within the Christian household, and this, this is my inheritance and that I, I see myself as a son, son of the Christian household, uh, I think this is one of the big, big issues, uh, maybe the biggest challenges for Christianity at this moment in time. And, and that is, will we allow the, the light, the sort of shining of the divine that we so love in Jesus, um, will we allow that shining uh, to lead us to adore that light, to look for it, to be part of liberating it in one another and in all things? Or will we continue to um, to uh, give the impression that the light that shone so beautifully in Jesus, the light of love, the light of compassion, the light of wisdom, uh, is, is somehow foreign to, to you or to me or to, to all people. Uh, and I think pan-entheism can, can help us certainly in the Christian tradition get away from the sense of, of seeing the Christ figure as... Uh, as an exception uh, to humanity, instead of uh, instead of a manifestation of uh, the Christhood, uh, you know, I'd, 
I, I love the way my Buddhist friends speak about Buddha nature uh, as being deep within all. And I think the, I think uh, in the Christian household, I think we're, we're being offered uh, a way of speaking of the Christhood uh, deep within every human being uh, as a way of speaking of this intersection of the divine and the human and the spirit and matter that is deep within all things. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And I think, again, this like a soul knowing or a deep recognition that does exist within each of us. And then in some ways, the, the language just gets in the way, right? The ideas kind of get in the way. But I, I'm reminded of this. I, I return to this a lot. I don't know if you've seen this series that was on, it was popular on Netflix. It might still be running a couple of years ago. And it was a book, a New York Times bestselling book, the Tidying Up, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up with Marie Kondo. Do you know this? No, I don't. <laughs> so it's this, it's this um, Japanese woman who wrote this book about how to clean your living space and then keep it clean. And it's, it's, worked, it's worked for many, many, many people, including yeah. me, by the way. But part of what I love about it is one of the steps in the process is as you purge these belongings that, you, that no longer serve you, yeah. that you thank them, that you actually carefully and, and yeah. you, you regard where it came from. Was it a gift? Was it at one time useful? You know, did it have sentimental value? Whatever. And then you, love, you literally think it verbally or at least you know, in your mind, and then you, and then you donate it. And I just think that part of the reason that was such a phenomenon, maybe continues to be for some people is because of that soul knowing that's like, Oh yes, that article of clothing warmed me for many seasons, but now, you know, I no longer want it or whatever. Yeah. I think that speaks to exactly what you're saying now. Yeah. And this, uh, this remembering the, the gift or how one came to, to receive it is, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll live. Uh, yeah. even when the, when the actual possession or, or gift has been redistributed. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And, and I think it's no coincidence too, that this, you know, this work, this approach that Marie has created and shared comes from a culture that, that at some deep level still has this sense of animism that, that everything yeah. is alive in some way, you know? Yeah. So I, I think it's pretty remarkable. And, and I remember reading a few years ago, something by the Eastern teacher Osho, where he had said, there is no God, but life itself. And at the time, especially from a Western, like the Christian perspective in which I was raised, that was almost, I think, like for me, like blasphemous, or at least challenging. (laughs) I was like, whoa, that's really interesting. But I've pondered on that a lot. And and it really does resonate with me. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's, again, very close to to what we get in the Celtic stream. It's the... A God, God is seen as the essence of all life, um, rather than uh, a, a presence uh, or sacredness that, that might only be found in certain people, certain times, certain places. It's Ari uh, Ugin, uh, a ninth-century Irish teacher who I uh, devote a chapter to in the new book. He uh, he loves to play with with words. I, I love the way he plays with the word. Uh, Theos, uh, T-H-E-O-S, the, the, the Greek uh, form of God. And uh, he says, Theos is derived from the verb Theo, uh, which means to flow. 
uh, and he says, uh, God is the flow uh, deep within all things, this, this sort of subterranean flow of the divine. And, uh, and he says, if, if somehow that flow uh, were dammed up or stopped, then everything would cease, cease to exist. So that flow of the divine is not, is not simply a feature of life which may or may not be there. Uh, it is the very essence. Um, so how do we um, how do we release that flow? Um, you know, how do we serve it? How do we set it free mm. in one another? Uh, and you know, I'd, I've often thought um, if uh, if we had gone with Ariagina's understanding of the root of the word Thetmos, God, um, you know, we would study not theology, but we would study flowology. You know? <laughs> and, and, and that might help us remember that the that theos, the divine, is not sort of uh, to be seen as sort of out there or transcendent, but, yeah. but the very stream of life. Uh, and um, yeah, and uh, uh, Kenneth White, uh, a modern day poet that I devote the final chapter to in the book, he he likes to play further on. Eugenia's playfulness, and he says, God is not only the flow, uh, God is the glow flow uh, mm. that is deep within all things, the sort of shining of light. And um, I like to play further on that playfulness and say, God is not only the flow, God is not only the glow flow, but we need to let go to the glow flow. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that, in a sense, is all we need to do. We don't, you know, we don't have to invoke it, we can't create it, we can't uh, summon it from afar. Yeah, it's about letting go to this this deep essence of the divine in, in one another and um, living in, in, a, in a relationship of trust and belief in that flow. Yeah, that, you know, that reminds me of something I once learned uh, that the Lakota word in the Native American tradition for God of Wonkan Wakin Tanka, and I—that I, was another guest on on the show who who shared this. That that the way one way that it's translated is sacred energy in constant motion. Uh-huh. And I was like, that is really beautiful. And this idea that you're talking now about flow, I love that too because I think about the flow state. You know, something has been popularized in positive psychology over the last couple decades or so. Yeah. And this idea that when we achieve a flow state, whether it's in sports or it's in a creative act or just playing a game or something, that the ego version of us seems to disappear. Yeah. And it's just we're, we're fully engaged in life. There is no subject object. It's just, you know, there's no conscious thought. It's just action and, and involvement. And I think it's, it's really wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if something isn't uh, flowing or further unfolding, then, then it's finished. Um, and you know, the very nature of the universe is, is that it just keeps, keeps unfolding. And a lot of our uh, sort of re- religious systems have, have wanted a, a fairly uh, sort of fixed notion of the, the unchanging God or you know, the eternal in that sense, um, instead of seeing that, uh, that, that this flow that is deep within us all is 
constantly looking for new form, new manifestation, new, new expression. Yeah. You know, and I love your take on this because there's another kind of theory I live with, which is that ultimately what each of us is seeking. And, and really, I, I, I love what Joseph Campbell said about this, the mythologist, that ultimately what each of us is seeking is a feeling. Is really a feeling. We think it's a car. We think it's a certain kind of relationship. We think it's a net worth or whatever. But at the, at the root of it, there's an experience. And so the yeah. theory I have is that sometimes we're lucky enough to have these certain experiences, whether they're these transcendent, they're metaphysical, they're just extraordinary or whatever. And we want to hold on to it and we want to be able to reliably recreate it and we want to share it with others. Yeah. And it's at that moment we start to kind of codify it. But what we really do is like calcify it. And then it loses the energy or the life or the aliveness that it had very often through what we was well-meaning, right? But these rituals become commandments or something. And we disconnect from the real energy, I think, or the aliveness of life. So again, I don't know that there's a question there, but what's your take on that idea that what we're looking for is an experience. And when we try to preserve it or recreate it or share it, we just, then we kind of make it a, a religion out of it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it sort of take, takes me back to an earlier point in our conversation. We were talking about the burning bush. So Moses encounters the, um, the divine, this uh, shining uh, uh, in the bush. Uh, and this is an encounter uh, with the divine. And, and he, he, he says, what, what's your name? And, you know, he, he wants to define, in a sense, define it, to give it a name. And the response uh, uh, from, from the sort of shining or burning uh, is, I am who I am. Uh, I, I have been who I have been. I will be who I will be. Don't, don't try to name me. Don't try to tame me. Uh, uh, don't try to sort of somehow claim me as, as uh, part of the system. And uh, and I think yeah, I think that's how that's how we're to see one another. You know, the the uh, there are th- there's certain things we love to say about ourselves. Um, you know, and I might say about you that you you are American. You, uh, uh, these things, these th- words that we can use to somewhat point to at the other, uh, but always, you know, I'm I'm. Being invited to remember that you you, you are of the nameless, uh, you're of the one who can't be sort of defined or named. And uh, there's a great love in the in the Celtic world, and and this is something that I've always uh, been deeply attracted to, and, and that is the wildness of, of the divine, the sort of undomesticated, untamable essence of our being that we can't that we can't. Um, nailed down uh, and, and uh, make, it, make it serve our uh, systems of thought or systems of belief, uh, that w- what we're being invited to do is to stay in relationship with that presence in one another and in all things, uh, and allow that, that encounter of the divine to, to again be our deep security rather than, rather than thinking we can name it or define it. I like that. Another thing in talking about this, about the wildness or the namelessness, the ineffable quality that, uh, you know, that might exist here. Um, 
I have this, this other theory I'd love to get your take on, which is that we've created the technologies or even the problems un- unconsciously, right? It's almost what um, Jung had said, a man will do anything no matter how absurd in order to affa- avoid facing his own soul <laughs> kind of yeah. thing that I wonder if as a society, whether it's social media or something, you know, the automobile, the car, whatever the technology is, or the problems that go along with that as a way of helping us reawaken, right? Because there's a pain, there's an urgency, there's a, there's a collective action required and so forth. So I tend to believe, otherwise, I'm not sure how to make sense of it, that we've created these technologies, we've even made these problems as a way of helping us return to an awareness of our essential selves. What do you think? Yeah, the, uh, I, I think the, 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 uh, the great challenge is, is to allow anything that, that we create to, um, to, to serve, serve that sort of undefinable, uh, ever unfolding uh, center, uh, rather, rather than to restrict it. I remember um, you know, uh, someone like Teilhard de Chardin, this French uh, Celtic teacher, in the 20th century, uh, he, he saw the, the sort of telephone as, as this opportunity for a, a greater sense of interrelationship and, and to enter the, the, the interrelatedness of, of humanity and to, uh, to, to really serve this, what he called this neurosphere, this sort of um, dimension within the human that can't can't be defined, uh, and uh, you know, and, and we're we're uh, we're living in an age that that has sort of stepped up that technology in, in a very big way, and uh, and I think we forever uh, I, I think are having to 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 uh, as individuals, but also together in relationship, uh, make sure that it's um, being harnessed by. By the, 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 the sort of soul force that that is at the heart of our being, um, and and not make us cap, you know cap, captive to it. I mean, it's uh, I suppose it's 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 another version of, of how Jesus approaches sort of religion and religious law, and he says you know the Sabbath was uh, was uh, made for man, not man for the Sabbath. I mean, we're you know we're so uh, how how does any development, whether religious or technological or cultural, how does it keep um, keep serving, uh, sort of re- releasing this uh, uh, deep and knowing of the sacred in and through one another? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what a wonderful question! What a what a great question! It might not. Maybe it is a technology. Something else I really want to ask you about is it's prayer. You've written an entire book about prayer. <laughs> That's something it's, I, I imagine has been very, very important to your life and, and your teachings for a long time. It's something I'm still working to understand more or practice more. And I realized it's one of these things that for many people can be off-putting. It's like, you know, why, how, or to whom, you know, and that kind of thing. Yeah. But just kind of generally, how do you, how do you think of prayer? What is it? 
how do we do it? Why should we do it? But anything else related to it that you might share, just kind of an immediate response like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, a couple of things. Uh, one is that the, you know, the, the more I'm given this gift of, of life, the, the more years I'm given, the, the more I am uh, drawn to silence and, and to, to an absence of, of words. Even though I'm I'm such a lover of words, uh, so it's 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 a real, I think, good or creative ten- tension in me. Um, so I I uh, I find myself in terms of my uh, daily rhythm and discipline. Uh, you know, when I when I wake up in the morning, and I love the early morning, I love to to try to be rising with the sun or just before the sun. Which is more challenging in the summer in Scotland, uh, and much easier in the winter. <laughs> <laughs> the, the late, late rise in the summer and the winter. But um, you, you know, when I wake up, I, I first sort of conscious thought is, oh, I get to have half an hour of silence now, and and I just I love that that um, simple beauty of. Of silence, and I and I do see it as, you know, I, having grown up in the in the Christian tradition. Sometimes I I speak of that as prayer. Uh, sometimes I speak of it as meditation. Uh, but however one defines it or uh, speaks of it, I I do see it as um, as an opportunity to to bring the heart of my being into a sort of receptivity to to the heart of all. Being, um, and then um, uh, you know, I, I, as as you say, I I have written these uh, prayer books uh, to try to give articulation to to what can't be articulated, um, because I think and, and that that sort of take, takes me back to some of our earlier uh, conversation about the importance of the anamkara, and that is the importance of just trying to utter. Uh, from from the soul, uh, and even though there's this recognition that uh, that we can't uh, give it uh, anything like uh, full definition or complete definition, uh, there's something very beautiful about the act of trying. You know, this is this is true of love, isn't it? That uh, that we. We so love to 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 find try to find expression, uh, verbal expression, including physical and emotional expression, uh, to to the one or to the ones that we we love. Uh, there's something there's something you know we're getting. It seems close to the heart of creativity when we're trying to give give expression to to this mystery of love. Um, and it, and it's been really interesting for me as as a writer uh, to note uh, di- very different styles of writing. When I write prose uh, in the realm of theology or spirituality, um, when I read my writing afterwards, I I can sort of see myself all over the page. Um, uh, so in that sense, maybe the ego is is. Uh, not in a negative way necessarily, but the ego is more involved, uh, or the conscious is, is more involved. 
uh, when I write prayer, which I see as more sort of poetic expression, um, I often don't recognize my, myself in, in prayers, poetic utterances that I've, I've uh, tried to give expression to. And I think that's because uh, a prayer, uh, my experience of it is not just coming from within me in a limited sense. I, I feel it's coming from within us. Uh, mm. I feel I'm drawing from much more an openness to the soul within our, our soul. Um, and uh, that's one of the reasons why, why I so, so love poetic and prayer-related uh, writing. And I, I sometimes fairly consciously do, do a moving from a piece of prose into a piece of poet, uh, poetry or, or prayer because um, I think the language of prayer comes much more directly from the unconscious uh, than, than it does from the, the conscious or rational mind. Mm. Well, and that idea too of silence as a form of prayer, that's new yeah. to me. And I like it. I, I really like it. And I, I remember reading somewhere right about this instruction to pray unceasingly. Yeah. And then it's kind of like that joke, 24 hour banking, who's got time for that? <laughs> right? Like, how do you pray unceasingly and live? But then I remember, you know, a teacher of mine, Sadhguru, he says, we do not meditate, we become meditative. And yeah. I thought, how interesting to approach prayer as a way of being a way of living. Yeah. It's yeah. really, really an interesting challenge and, and why we might want to. Yeah. But to me, like you're saying, just kind of it's an orientation to life where it could be. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, one of the cherished memories in the, in the Celtic uh, stream of wisdom is this uh, uh, memory of John the Beloved, uh, who it was said in the Celtic world that he, he leaned against Jesus at the Last Supper. And it was said of him in, in Celtic wisdom that he therefore heard the heartbeat of God. And then he becomes a symbol of the practice of listening, mm. listening within ourselves, within one another, within the body of earth. And listen, listening for the beat of the sacred in all things. And uh, that, that certainly, uh, to me, is, is uh, an image or a symbol, metaphor of prayer, that it's, uh, it's this deep listening posture in a sense, first and foremost, it is a listening. And then, and then uh, finding ourselves wanting to express in response uh, to, to this lis listening or the, the beat, the beat of the sacred in one another and all things. Yeah, and, and maybe as a starting point, this one I said you, you gave language to some things that this was one of them is um, the holy work of inner attentiveness. Yeah. That is a cool. That is a cool description. Oh, did I say that? I, I, I would, uh, I would say that's a that's a lovely phrase. I don't remember saying it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that was while you were writing prayer. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So we've covered so much, and there's so much more that that I could ask you about, and we haven't even transitioned to the enlightening lightning round where <laughs> writing and creativity. But let me just ask you before. Before we transition, what I know we haven't talked about the feminine, we haven't talked, we touched on Christ. I'm actually really curious because I've had some other 
readings where that starts to differentiate very much between Jesus, the man, and Christ and so forth. But anyway, that's something that I thought I might want to ask about. But what haven't we talked about that um, either you want to talk about or you think might benefit the listener at this point? Anything else from Sacred Earth, Sacred Soul that you'd like to, to touch on now? Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, chapter two uh, on St. Bridget as icon of the feminine is, um, is a very important part of the stream of Celtic wisdom. It, it's uh, an integral part of, of what this uh, tradition is offering us. Uh, because I think uh, certainly in the Celtic world, the reverence for the feminine, and reverence for the earth are inseparably interwoven. And the, the sort of shadow side of, um, of the masculine that, that has so dominated a lot of our Western world, politically, culturally, philosophically, religiously, um, uh, has often arrayed itself up over against the earth and over against the feminine. Uh, so that what we've, what we've done to earth is, is, is often you know, the subordination of, or wronging use of feminine. So um, just just to recognize that these these are so interwoven uh, in, in Celtic wisdom. And uh, and I access it through through this sort of beautiful iconic Irish uh, woman of the fifth century, Bridget. And uh, and I I I think that uh, I mean Bridget is very beautiful in the way she is a liminal is a liminal figure or invites us into liminal places and and one of the liminal places that she stands herself or or positions herself is is in that doorway or threshold place between the pre-christian and the christian in a way that deeply honors both and she she represents this rich meeting or marriage of Druidic wisdom and Christ wisdom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I loved so much reading about that liminal and just recognizing that we're always, like we talked about already with flow and, and transition, that we're always in transition. The, the threshold yeah. between life and death, <laughs> the threshold between, you know, the time and eternity. You know, so many yeah. have a character, like a figure that represents yeah. that. Yeah. Yes, I, I uh, yeah, I think that's so true. I um, my ninety-seven-year-old mother died just three weeks ago, and um, her last couple of days uh, were very much in that liminal place between life and death, between the seen and the unseen, heaven and earth. And uh, she went into this very silent place, and I, I, I and peaceful place, and um, from that threshold place, uh, it, it was as if she was blessing us, um, even, you know, even in the way she, she died, by sort of lingering in that liminal uh, place. And, uh, and I think that's what, what a figure like Bridget does on so many fronts, you know, whether it's the liminal space between uh, the seen and the unseen, or the divine and the human, between humanity and the creatures, um, and also this sort of liminal uh, place between the womb of the universe and what is trying to manifest, what's trying to 
and be born uh, in, among us uh, and what's trying to be born in our consciousness and to, to, uh, to sort of intentionally place oneself in, in the liminal. You know, so much of our culture and Western religion and thought has, has been quite dualistic rather than to, uh, to see the liminal place, the, the place that connects so-called opposites as, as one of the most creative places to be, if not the most, most creative. And one of the things I've loved about the Celtic stream is that these uh, teachers often place themselves uh, between head and heart. So, so there's, uh, there's a flow sort of moving from, from head to heart. And I think that when, when I experience that threshold place within us, I feel, I feel like the most creative. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, thanks for sharing about that. I'm sorry for the loss of your mother. Thank you. Thank you. Well, okay. Oh, there is, speaking of transitions, so not just transitioning the interview, it's maybe a personal question, but I did, I think I saw it on your website or at least found it somewhere online. I wonder if you'd be willing to talk a little bit about just a couple of years ago in 2020 that you relinquished your ordin- ordination as a minister of the Church of Scotland. That sounds like a pretty big deal. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, I, th- I think it was a significant moment. Uh, for me, uh, it was a realization that uh, that what I'm teaching uh, in my writings and, and in my teaching um, is is not deeply connected to what I signed up to uh, when I became a minister of uh, the Church of Scotland as a young theological student, and um, I. Uh, it was important for me, for, for the sort of integrity of my own journey, to ask, well, why am I, why am I keeping that that title, Reverend uh, of the Church of Scotland, when it's not, in fact, reflected in, in my teaching and writing? And what is uh, dearest to me in terms of a vision of reality, and what's most important to me in my own life, and and relationships and interrelationships um, is is not only absent from the creedal statements of the church, um, but many of many of those uh, creeds and statements are actually opposed to what <laughs> are actually saying something opposite to what I'm saying about the essential sacredness of earth and every human being. So it was really important for me, uh, as a sort of personal act of integrity, to say. No, I, you know, it's important that I let go of that, relinquish it, uh, because it doesn't represent uh, who I am, what I'm longing for, what I'm trying to be. Um, and, and part of that was a, a sort of conscious realization that, that there's an ancient stream, there's a pattern in the Celtic world of, of what were called sort of wandering teachers or in the medieval period, they were called Scottish Bagans, wandering Scots, and uh, and they they were a real headache, of course, to the to the established church, and they were a headache to the Vatican and so on because they they weren't um, they didn't sign up to 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 uh, obediently follow the doctrines of imperial Christianity, uh, so they were in fact 
in that way set free to try to speak from, from within the, the human soul um, and to challenge uh, the falseness of how we're ordering ourselves as societies or religions. Um, and there was the realization in me that, you know, in this Judeo-Christian tradition that I that I'm a son of, um, there's always, we've always certainly in our scriptures um, made room for the prophetic, uh, for, for a voice that, that, that calls out from the desert or from the, from the wilderness rather than from the heart of uh, the four, within the four walls of religion or the establishment. And uh, I don't want to, uh, to, to give any impression that speaking from the, the desert or the wild, the wild place is somehow more pure or, or a, a place of higher elevation. It, it, it's more that we need both. We need the prophetic. We need people speaking very much from the edge or from out in the undefined place. Uh, but we ne- we also need sort of courageous and visionary people to to be speaking from within the four walls of of religion as we have inherited it. And many of my best friends, you know, continue to be uh, priests or ministers within the Church of England, Church of Scotland, the Episcopal tradition, and so on. And I have enormous respect for for uh, so many of them are dear to me. So um, you know, the decision to relinquish was not was not a, um, a statement of judgment against others. Yeah. And uh, I'm also aware that sort of in, within the Christian tradition, we, we are at a momentous time, I think, of a changing face uh, to Christianity and millions, untold millions of my brothers and sisters from the Christian household um, began life within the church and they're no longer there. Um, so... I, you know, because so much of what's happening within the four walls of religion is not deeply addressing some of the, the yearnings at the heart of the human soul today. So uh, I think the decision to relinquish ordination was, was uh, a moment in my life when I uh, wanted to, to very clearly say, uh, I belong to that diaspora, I belong to that sort of exiled group. Uh, and uh, and to try to give articulation to what it is that we're yearning for, and and to really pay attention, I I, I believe that part of the way forward uh, is to pay attention to the, the yearnings of our soul, and uh, so that that's what I'm trying to do, and and to and to know the enormous freedom as well as the enormous insecurity and uncertainty. <laughs> operating within a a highly defined system. Yeah, well, there's so much there. And and I think at different times in our lives, we all face a similar question or challenge or opportunity of whether it's a relationship or it's a career or it's some other role or, you know, set of beliefs or something. And and, and so we all get to do that. And and to your last point too, I'm reminded of something I, I once heard Tony Robbins say, that the quality of our lives is in direct proportion to the amount of uncertainty we can comfortably live with. <laughs> yes, that's good. And I was like, that's yeah. amazing. If we can, if we're willing to go beyond what is familiar, what's comfortable, not to the point that it stresses us out or causes us anxiety, but 
we keep finding toward the edge, leaning toward that edge. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. And and then it, this might not be directly related, but when you talk about the wandering, the Scotus Vegan, is that the term? Yeah. There was one other word that I really loved, this idea of peregrination or yeah. peregrinating. Yeah. Right. Will you talk about that for a moment? And 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 I will ask this too, because if, if a metaphor, if not literally, but at least as a metaphor for what we're doing as we're living, I think yeah. there's so much beauty and power in that. But how what is peregrination and why did you include it in the book? Yeah, so in, in the uh, particularly in the, in the Irish sort of Celtic stream, there was this practice of, of what was called peregrination, um, uh, and and the person who who would be sort of wandering in, in this mode was called a peregrini, uh, and uh, peregrination was sometimes spoken of as seeking one's place of resurrection. Um, sort of letting go of the known uh, in order to uh, sail out into the unknown uh, in the belief that the place of new beginning or uh, the, the place of new awareness and new realization and transformation. Um, so it was sort of letting go of the familiar. So uh, peregrination sometimes happened very literally in terms of setting sail, sometimes without uh, without a rudder um, uh, uh, to, to be sort of blown by the elements to, to where one's place of new beginning was, you know, in, in its most extreme form, it was sort of setting sail on the boat without a rudder. So, that, so the rudder represents this sort of wanting to be in control or wanting to, to direct. And in a sense, uh, allowing uh, an elemental energy much greater than us to would take us to to a place that we, we don't yet know, and um, the 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 ninth chapter in the book, the final chapter, is on this uh, poet that I've offer, already referred to, Kenneth White, and he works a lot with the sort of notion of peregrination, um, and uh, his way of, of putting it is that we we uh, are being invited to. Um, set sail or, or journey to what he calls a new found land uh, 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 to open our imagination uh, to to uh, to open to ways of seeing to ways of being ways of interrelating that we haven't known before and I think that that that's the real heart of uh, peregrination it's about finding a, a place of resurrection uh, in, in what we don't yet know. And I, I, I always find it important to remember Carl, Carl Jung's distinction between uh, resurrection and resuscitation, uh, because sometimes the word resurrection is spoken, uh, uh, but what's really meant is, is resuscitating, you know, uh, something that we've already known or something that we've already been before. And uh, Carl Jung says the, um, in the, in the Easter story, uh, the risen Christ is, is not found where his body was laid. It, 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 the, the risen Christ uh, story is, is much more something we couldn't have been imagined. So it's, uh, it's not about sort of resuscitating the old. Um, uh, it, it's about opening to what we don't yet know. And, uh, and I, I think that's, that's, 
what all of us are being invited into, you know, whether, whether it's in our lives individually or whether it's collectively and together, uh, we're, we're being invited into, into new, new territory. And, and um, part of what that calls us to do is, is to set sail from, from the known to um, sort of faithfully uh, let go uh, in order to be, to be open to, to the new. Yeah. And maybe that's a little earlier too, right? About the, the glow, let the, let the glow. Let glow to the go kind of thing. <laughs> All right. So the enlightening lightning round, please. So please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a, a dance. Okay. Question number two. Here I'm borrowing the investor and technologist Peter Thiel's somewhat famous question. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? Yeah. Uh, I think in the context of um, my own sort of religious theological uh, upbringing, I, I would say that very few people within that uh, tr tradition uh, look look for the divine at the heart of all life. Hmm. I think you're right. <laughs> okay, question number three. I realize this might be a stretch, but I invite you to exercise some imagination if required. If you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? I am who I am. Okay, question number four. What book, other than one of your own, have you gifted or recommended most often? I think the Carmen Agadelica, the Songs of the Gales. Is that a book that has many translations? And if so, is there one in particular you'd recommend? Uh, as far as I'm aware, uh, it's only uh, been translated from the Gaelic uh, to the English. And most... Uh, uh, well, and many versions uh, provide the Gaelic on the one, the original Gaelic on the one page, and the the English translation on, on the other. Um, mm. Yeah, it, uh, it the original is a six volume work, but it has, uh, thank God, been been um, made available as a one volume work, much more accessible price wise. <laughs> cool. But uh, yeah, the songs of the Gales, I've I've given us way too many. Yeah. All right. Question number five. So your work involves a lot of travel. What's one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? Uh, I, I take uh, with me a, a willingness to, to do a lot of sleeping uh, mm -hmm. when, I, when I travel um, and and to, to, to let go, to, uh, to, to sleep and to rest when I travel instead of trying to, to uh, combine travel and, and work. Hmm. All right. Question number six. What's something you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? Siesta. I, uh, I describe myself as a siesta fundamentalist now. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I find that uh, letting go to sleep and dream uh, 
in the early afternoon. So, so renewing of my strength. Uh, I come out of siesta often with clarity about something in the morning I might have been struggling with, uh, sort of accessing, reaccessing the unconscious, uh, just physically let, letting go and uh, experiencing a type of resurrection halfway through the day. Oh, that's, that's beautiful. And if I may just tug on this briefly, I tend to think this is one of those ways in which our society, especially the Western culture, maybe in particular the American culture that values you know, hard work and so forth and, and self-sacrifice to some degree, dishonors nature where I think yeah. our bodies want to rest in the afternoon and we, nope, yeah. it's a shift and you have this many breaks and then get yeah. back to work as hard. Yeah. Yeah, it belongs deeply to a natural cycle. Uh, yeah, and, and for me, the, the thing of naps, because my dad died at 64. He didn't believe in naps. I think he probably would have lived longer if he had napped and done a few other things yeah. to take care yeah. of himself. Yeah. But for me, my life changed when I took a tour of um, Frank Gehry's architectural school in, in just outside of Phoenix, uh, Arizona. Yeah. And he had, I saw in his, um, in his private space, he had a little bench where he napped and he would draw a curtain. And it was understood by all the students and everyone there that if that curtain was drawn, don't disturb Frank. Yeah. But I remember thinking if there's someone who could achieve so much, contribute to so many, and then be celebrated long after they were gone, and he took a nap in the afternoon, I'm going to too. <laughs> yeah. Great. So you're confirming for me. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Uh, question number seven. What's one thing you wish every American knew? Ah, yeah. I uh, I wish you knew the beauty of the Western Isles of Scotland, mm. and uh, especially the island of Iona. I'd like you to come. I have looked. I would like to come. I've looked. Yeah. At, it looks, by the way, like those for this year have filled up pretty well. Yeah, that that's right. They they have, and uh, it's it has a, an Irish uh, priest friend of mine once said about Iona. It has something of the freshness of the first day of creation about it it's uh, wow. there's a sort of purity of air and light coming in off the atlantic it's uh, it's a place that i unabashedly uh, am an evangelist for in terms of saying come it'll it'll be good for your body and soul yeah that's amazing i understand that you and your wife served as warden of iona that's right yeah abbey. so we were the sort of leaders of the abbey community for four years that's yeah. amazing but uh, I'm now back every year uh, doing these one-week international one-week pilgrimage events back on the island. And uh, yeah, one, one's coming up ne next week. In fact, uh, our first one for for since the pandemic began uh, two years ago. So it, it'll be great to be physically gathering again with internationals on on Iona. That's awesome. Well, thank you. And I love that description. Something of the freshness of the first day of creation. Is that yes. I have it right? Yeah. That yeah. sounds beautiful. Okay. I, I have added that. That is on my list. And I've long wanted to do a walking tour around a yeah. coastline. And just, I understand yeah. you can go like to little beds and breakfasts and take many, many weeks if one wanted to. Yeah. But I'd love to come to Iona. So thank you for yes. that. Well, let me know when you're coming. Okay. <laughs> Okay, uh, let's see question number eight coming down the stretch. So what's the most important or useful thing or something useful, it doesn't need to be the most, about making relationships work? What have you learned about 
making relationships work that serve you well. Uh, belief in, in what time has to unfold in, in the relationship. Uh, and I think that I would say that's about the high points uh, about relationship that, that give it time and it will be even richer. And, uh, and, and the lower challenging points, I shouldn't necessarily call it low, but, uh, but the challenging times that, that often if we give it time, uh, then, then there's going to be some perspective and we avoid the, uh, the drama uh, that can sometimes do, do damage to, to friendships, to relationships, if we don't give it time to mature and deepen. Yeah, thank you. Okay, and final question here is about uh, money. So aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've learned about money? I think that money can, can represent some, some uh, freedom, both of choice and, and, of, uh, and of sort of moving beyond sort of survival mode. I think that money can can sometimes uh, open up the sort of freedom of choice, uh, which I've which I've uh, appreciated. Uh, yeah, I think that uh, I mean that you know there's the <laughs> the other side of the question could, can always be asked as well. Uh, you know, what's the limitation or bondage or imprisonment to the financial, but on the positive side, I would say that it's uh, it's about opening up um, a, re- a realm of uh, being uh, being open to, to the present and being open to the future in a way that isn't dictated uh, by finances. Oh, awesome. Thank you. Okay. Well, and speaking of money, something I have done, a small uh, gesture of gratitude for you uh, making time to share so generously of your experience and your wisdom with me and everyone listening as I've gone on the um, micro lending site, kiva.org. So it's a nonprofit organization that um, has, they make micro loans to entrepreneurs in developing countries. So through them, I've, I've made a micro loan of a hundred dollars to a woman named Vanessa in Ecuador. And she will use this to buy groceries and cleaning products and personal care products that she'll sell. So in that way, improve the quality of life in her community and for herself and her family. And then I won't make any interest on it, but when she repays the loan, it will then be recycled to another entrepreneur. So um, I believe it will be a virtuous cycle that our conversation will do some good beyond even those who ever hear it. So thank you for giving me a reason to do that. Thank you. Okay. So last, last couple questions here about writing and the creative process. I think there's really just two two questions that I'd love to, to ask. And then if something else pops up that feels like you want to share on this topic, by all means. But the first, the first question, it's kind of, it could be a big question, but it's just, you've written many books and writing a book is still, and I think it probably always will be uh, a huge undertaking right up there with earning a college degree or starting a company or, you know, anything else that we might achieve in our lives and something many people aspire to. How, do you do it? <laughs> what is your process to actually take whatever thoughts you have, put them into words, put them between a cover, 
put them out into the world. And by the way, to do it in a way that people enjoy and direct <laughs> benefit from. Yeah. What's your, what's your, what's your secret, John Phillip? <laughs> uh, I, uh, as, as a sort of wandering teacher, I of course have opportunity to be teaching in live context with, uh, with people. And uh, that's an important part of my writing process to, uh, to develop vision, uh, the articulation of vision um, in a live context where I'm um, trying to re refine the articulation and I get to see the light shining in people's eyes when, when I make a connection. I get to notice when eyes glaze over when I'm, when I'm, when I'm not doing a good job of, of articulating vision. So for me, uh, major writing projects, uh, certainly in the realm of prose, begin with me having the opportunity to try articulation of vision out, uh, usually over a number of years before I even uh, set down to, to working on the book. So that, that's an important part of it for me. Uh, and of course, the questions that come, the comments that come out of a live teaching context are very instructive. I, you know, I, I, I don't see that part of the process as, as a solitary one at all. I'm really learning from the, the people who are gathering with me to engage with vision. Uh, and then the actual writing uh, process, there are a couple of things that are really important to me. One, one is early morning. Um, so that after my time of meditation, um, I, uh, I like to be at the desk writing extremely early around the time of the rising of the sun. And I'm, I feel most clear uh, in, in the morning. And when I'm writing, it's, um, I, will give, I will give a full, full morning to it and not try to do anything else. But then I, I will truly stop uh, at lunch um, and I don't, I don't return to it in the afternoon or evening. So I, I believe, you know, what works for me is the clarity of the morning. And uh, the other thing is that I, I write, I write extremely slowly. Um, for me, it's one word at a time. Um, I produce what in, in the business is called a very clean manuscript. It doesn't need a lot of editing or reworking because I'm really, I'm really. Um, editing as, as I write, it, it's important for me to have the right articulation and for, formation of words uh, be, because uh, it, it is, when something is clearly expressed, um, I think simply and clearly expressed, I, I think that's when we're getting closer to, to the heart of the matter. Um, there, there's a poet in the Scottish context, uh, who I love, Edwin Muir, uh, same spelling as John Muir, but Edwin Muir. And um, he says in, in one of his writings, um, the challenge with truth is not that it's too complicated for expression. The challenge with truth is that it is too simple for expression. Mm. And uh, that's something I believe in. I, I know that when... When my writing starts getting complicated, um, I realize I'm further away from the truth. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm needing further clarity. 
so I strive after a tremendous simplicity of writing and, um, and, you know, comparing what I write now with what I wrote when I did my doctoral uh, thesis as, as a PhD student. I was writing in very long, uh, complex sentences in those days, uh, whereas um, what I prefer nearly always is, is to write extremely simple, simple sentences. And um, so that's what I aim for. And, and for me, it's always one, one word at a time. It's, I, I, I tend not to have bursts, uh, floodgates opening. <laughs> um, it's just one word at a time. And I show up at the desk and, and showing up at the desk to do the one word at a time is, is really what, what is important for me and what works. I imagine you do write with the benefit of a computer. I do. You're I not, do. This isn't I, longhand. I, I, I make my, uh, my initial notes and outlines with uh, a pencil. Um, but when it comes to actually uh, working on the text in terms of writing it, yeah, it's on a laptop. How much do you think about the reader in the moment of drafting, how connected do you feel? Yeah, a, a, a great deal. Uh, I mean, in part, that's already happened through the teaching context. That, you know, the the listener, uh, in a sense, is it, it becomes part of the reader for me. So that the the, the listener, uh, the the questioner, the observer has, has already, in a sense, uh, helped shape my my sense of who the reader is. Um, I also, when I'm when I write, uh, I often choose a person uh, that I particularly have in mind, uh, and often it's someone someone that I know sufficiently well to be uh, alert to. Well, what would this mean to him, or what would this mean to her? And uh, and it's usually a very intentionally in my case, you know, because I'm. Uh, because I was sort of trained as a theologian, it's really important for me uh, not to be writing to other theologians, uh, but but uh, to to make sure again that my language is simple, that it's uh, more poetically inclined rather than philosophically inclined. Um, to to use to to again to tend to look for words in my case that are derived much more from from the, the Celtic and Anglo uh, stream of inheritance rather than from the Latin inheritance, which um, so many of our Latin-based words are, are quite sort of philosophical or more abstract. Um, and, you know, as I was saying before, instead of panentheism, I would prefer to speak about the life within all life. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. What advice or encouragement would you give to anyone listening who is either already in the middle of their own creative process, um, what's sometimes called the messy middle, <laughs> or it's a dream they've been harboring for a long time and for whatever reason they haven't started. What do you say to a person who either hasn't gotten into action or is in action, but they might be stuck in terms of writing yeah. a book? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's, um, I, a couple of things. One, one I, I would say not to make, make uh, hasty decisions about the value of what is being written. Uh, I know that 
you know, some days I will look at a piece of my own writing and think, ooh, this, this is rubbish. I mean, it just needs to go into the bin. Um, and then there are other days, of course, when I, when I look at writing, um, my writing, and I think, this is brilliant. Did I, did I actually write this? <laughs> Uh, so that I think I think we're we're prone. I mean, I certainly know myself. I'm prone to those vicissitudes. Um, so don't make any hasty uh, decisions. I would say uh, give it time to you know revisit uh, it. And, and and the reality is, is it'll usually be somewhere in between, neither rubbish nor, nor brilliant. <laughs> um, and um, uh, it's important. It's been important for me to have some the equivalent of Anam Karas, you know, people who who love me. But uh, part of loving it is also to to know how to critique, um, to helpful uh, for helpful critique. So um, I uh, recently lost uh, my old professor Douglas Duncan. Who, who had been my professor of English literature when I was a young man. And I've stayed in relationship with him his entire life. He, he died at the age of 90 uh, in December. And uh, every single piece of writing uh, that I worked on over my life before publication, he would see it. And, wow. uh, and he, would, he, he never ceased to be my professor in that sense. He really loved he believed in what I'm trying to do, but he he realized that part of his loving of me was to uh, to say, you know, this isn't clear. I mean, uh, this personal anecdote you're getting in the way of your message, you know, whatever whatever he he felt or discerned about the writing, he he would give it, give me um, a critique which came from a place of love. And I, I think that it's important to, if possible, find someone who loves us enough to, to know how to be helpfully critical. Yeah, that's great input. Well, just on that thread, how do you know when to trust, like when to listen to, when to trust, when to follow the guidance of a loving critic versus your own kind of sensibility? Yeah. Yeah, I, th I think that, that, you know, there needs to be this this meeting place and uh, it's easy to get sort of blown around by what one's editor has to say or, you know, one's loving critic has to say. So ab absolutely, that's that's a really important point. It's, uh, it's important to sort of hold one's, one's centre. Um, and, and for me, that, that centre is... Uh, rooted on the, on the daily basis in, in, in meditation and silence mm. that uh, that's that's where I'm in in this sort of deep deep listening mode and uh, and that then helps me uh, pay attention to what my editor what the loving critic has to say so that, uh, it, because I, I think how it, you know if, if one doesn't sort of have that sense of center and uniqueness of voice because each one of us has has this unique voice and i think that's the the other thing that it's it's really important in writing not not to compare what what one has to say with another writer um because each one of us is is called to do it very uniquely um 
and and that that's the the value of this of this each having opportunity to have have voice. Uh, so, uh, and I think the other thing for me uh, um, in the writing process, especially in the realm of publication, is not to be not to be striving um, to to um, to, to be a success in, in terms of how other people measure success. I think uh, a successful piece of writing for me is not to be measured in terms of bestseller lists. Uh, it's to be measured in, in terms of whether one is um, giving as true an expression of one's soul and love and passion uh, and creativity as you can. And, um, that that for me is the absolute. The other things are very relative and they come and go. Again, um, John Philip Newell, Sacred Earth, Sacred Soul, Celtic Wisdom for Reawakening to What Our Souls Know and the Healing World. John Philip, thank you again for being so generous with your time and your wisdom. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the School for Good Living podcast. Before you take off, I just want to extend an invitation to you. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life still isn't working for many people. Whether it's here in the developed world where we deal with depression, anxiety, loneliness, addiction, divorce, unfulfilling jobs or relationships that don't work, or in the developing world where so many people still don't have access to basic things like clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, they live in conflict zones, there are a lot of people on this planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, or even if your life is working, but you have the sense that it could work better, consider signing up for the School for Good Living's Transformational Coaching Program. It's something I've designed to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated, or you've gone through a divorce, or you've gotten married, headed into retirement, starting a business been married for a long time, whatever. No matter where you are in life, this nine-month program will give you the opportunity to go deep in every area of your life, to explore life's big questions, to create answers for yourself in a community of other growth-minded individuals. And it can help you get clarity and be accountable to realize more of your unrealized potential. It can also help you find and maintain motivation. In short, it's designed to help you live with greater health, happiness, and meaning so that you can be, do, have, and give more. Visit goodliving.com to learn more or to sign up today.